Well, one of the things that we've seen so far in the Gospel of Luke are people coming to a place in their life where they recognize that they need Jesus' touch. They come to a place where they recognize that they have a need that only Jesus can meet. Some recognize that they have a spiritual need that only Jesus can fulfill. Others recognize they have a physical need that only Jesus can heal. Some realize they have an emotional need that only Jesus can meet. Now, recognizing that you have a need that only Jesus can meet is the first step. The second step is actually coming to Jesus to meet that need. It's so important for us to recognize that we all have spiritual, emotional, physical needs that only Jesus is capable of meeting in our lives. But if it just stops there with a recognition and we don't actually come to Jesus, we don't come to Him with those needs, asking Him to help us with those needs, then we've missed the point. We need to come to Jesus with our spiritual, emotional, and physical needs and ask Jesus to meet those needs. All of you here this morning who came to a point in your life where you recognized you were a sinner and you came to Jesus, you asked Him to forgive you of your sin, you asked Him to come into your life, you were at that point where you realized, I have a spiritual need that only Jesus can meet. And now I'm going to come to Jesus with my spiritual need and ask Him to meet that need. And because you came and asked Jesus to meet your need, He did. Because Jesus loves to touch people. He loves to meet needs. He just wants us to come to Him with our needs and ask Him to meet those. Here in Luke chapter 8, we're going to see two people who have very big needs. Both those people are going to come to a place in their life where they recognize Jesus is the only one who can meet this big need in my life. And they're going to come to Jesus and seek Him to meet that need. And I think there's a lot we can learn from these two people, especially in how they come to Jesus. Because we need to first recognize that need, and we need to come to Jesus with that need. But, but how we come is important, and what we're going to see with these two people, I think, are great examples for us to put into practice as to how we should come to Jesus when we have needs that we recognize only He can meet. Well, last week we ended with Jesus casting out a demon of that man who was full of demons there in the region of the Gadareans, and uh, he tells him to go back into the city and to tell everyone all the good things that God has done for him. And so the disciples and Jesus, they left the northern part of Galilee, got in a boat, came down to the southern part of Galilee, which is the area of the Gadareans, and now they're going to get back into their boats, and they're going to go back up to where Jesus normally did the majority of his ministry, there in the region of Galilee, up at the northern part of the Sea of Galilee. And that's where we pick up this morning Chapter 8, verse 40 says this, So it was when he returned that the multitude welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. So remember, Jesus tells his disciples, hey, get in the boat, we're going to sail across the Sea of Galilee. And there were great things that were happening before he gets in the boat. And so the multitudes there, they see Jesus leave, and they're just waiting. They're anticipating his return. They can't wait for him to come back because they want Jesus to touch them. And in the crowd of this multitude, we're going to come across two individuals, two individuals that were desperate for the touch of Jesus, desperate for Jesus to meet their need. One man we're going to see is going to seek Jesus to touch his little girl who's dying, and we're going to see a woman who makes her way through a crowd to touch Jesus to meet her need. Both are aware of their need for Jesus, both come to Jesus, but how they come is the thing that I really want us to focus on and how Jesus responds to them. So let's see the first person, verse 41. 
And behold, there came a man named Jairus, and he was a ruler of the synagogue, and he fell down at Jesus' feet and begged him to come to his house. For he had an only daughter, about twelve years of age, and she was dying. But as he went, the multitudes thronged him. So the first person that we see here come on the scene is a man named Jarius. Now Jarius, we're told about a couple details. One that's interesting is that he was the ruler of the synagogue there in that city. And we're also told that he has a daughter, his only daughter. She's 12 years of age and she is dying. Now I want you to try to put yourselves in the shoes of Jarius and his wife. You know, you have this little daughter, you love her, you would do anything for her, and she is so sick that she's to the point of getting close to death. Now I'm sure as she first got sick, you tried everything you could, got the doctors, did all the things you knew how to get your daughter well, and as you've gone through and exhausted all the options, you have a point now where your daughter is still sick and she's getting closer and closer to death, and you're at that place of desperation wondering, what in the world are we going to do? Well, it's at this point where they recognize, you know what, there's only one person who can help our daughter. There's only one person who can meet the need of our daughter, and that is Jesus Christ. And so we need to come to Jesus to meet her need, come to Jesus to touch her and make her whole. And so the mother stays by the daughter's side, and Jairus, the father, goes out to find Jesus because he convinced that Jesus can meet the need of his daughter, that Jesus can heal his daughter who's about to die. Now, I think something that's very interesting to note in all of this is that we're told that Jairus is a ruler of the synagogue. Now, a ruler of the synagogue back in that day is kind of like a modern-day pastor. Uh, they were in charge of not only the spiritual, but also the, the practical financial needs of the synagogue. And that was just a group of Jewish people who would come together like we do on a weekly basis to come and worship God and pray and hear from His Word. And so, Jairus is the religious leader in that synagogue. Now, the reason I find that interesting, if you remember back a few chapters ago in Luke, we have the religious leaders who at this point in time really do not like Jesus at all. And they're there on the Sabbath in the synagogue. And according to them, you can't do anything on the Sabbath. And there's that man with that withered hand. And they're waiting to see, is Jesus going to heal this man on the Sabbath? Because if he does, oh man, we're going to come after him. And Jesus, he does. He heals this man on the Sabbath. But you know what? That synagogue is a synagogue that Jairus is the ruler of. So Jairus would have been there that day, and he most likely would have been siding with the religious leaders, with the Pharisees, the ones who said, you know what, we want Jesus out of here, we want to get rid of him, you know, we're done with him. So Jairus was most likely convinced by the religious leaders, since he is one of them, that Jesus is this bad guy, but you know what, he saw that withered hand come whole. And now he sees his daughter about to die, and all those things that he thought about Jesus, now he recognizes, you know what, he's the one who has the power to heal my little girl. He sees things maybe a little bit differently now, and he comes to Jesus. And we're told that as he finds Jesus, he falls on his feet before, or falls on his knees before Jesus, and he begs Jesus to come and touch his little girl. You know, I think the first thing I want you to note about Jairus is how he comes to Jesus with his need. Notice there's two things that we see here. First is humility. Second is desperation. He falls on his knees in front of Jesus, really an act of humility, and then we're told that he begs him, an act of desperation. He's desperate for Jesus to come and meet the need of his little girl. 
You know, when we recognize that we have a need that only Jesus can meet, I think these are two great ways to approach Jesus. First, come in humility. I think it's so sad that so often, I know in my own life, you know, we don't come in humility. You know, humility is recognizing, hey, I'm going to come to Jesus recognizing I don't deserve Him to meet my need. I don't deserve anything that He would do for me. I'm not deserving of Him. That's what grace is all about. God giving us what we don't deserve. Unmerited, undeserved, unearned favor. But so often, I know in my own life, I have approached God in pride, not humility. Came to Him in pride saying, Lord, I've done this, and I've done that, and I've done this, and so therefore you owe me. You need to meet my need because I deserve it because look at what I've done. I've been reading my Bible regularly. I've been going to church. I've been serving. I've been doing what you called me to do. And and we come up with all these things of why we're now deserving and why now God should meet the needs that we have and we come more in pride than we do in humility. I think something we need to understand is that we don't deserve anything from God. And we never will. But the reality is He's gracious and that should be something that encourages us because because He's gracious, He pours out on us that which we don't deserve. You know, there's a great, great passage of Scripture. James 4, 6 says, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. I think that it's so important as we come to God to remember the reality of this scripture. God resists those who are prideful. He gives grace to those who are humble. When you come to God in pride, wanting Him to meet your need, the reality is you're coming in a way that causes Him to resist you. When you come in humility, desiring God to meet your need, He pours His grace on you, that which you need. The unmerited favor, undeserved favor of God to meet the need that you have. So when you recognize you have a need only Jesus can meet, first come to Him in humility. But I think the second way we see Jairus come is another way that's so important for us to come as well. Come in desperation. You know, I think it's so interesting when I look at my own life, there are certain things, certain requests, certain needs that I'm desperate for Jesus to meet. But then there are others that I'm not so desperate for. You see, you can tell how bad someone wants something by how desperate they are for it. But I think God wants to bring us to that place where we recognize that every area of our life, we should be desperate for Him to intervene, for Him to meet the need, because the reality is He's the only one who ultimately can. But yet there's sometimes there's areas where we say, you know, I I can get this one on my own, Lord. I don't really need you to intervene here. I got this under control. And then there's other areas where we recognize maybe like Jarius of our loved one is sick to the point of death. And we're like, all right, Lord, here's one where I'm just desperate. I know I can't do it. I've tried everything. Now I'm relying on you. Instead, just coming to that place of desperation in every area of our life, just knowing, God, I need you desperately every day to help me in all areas of my life. So Jairus comes to Jesus in humility and desperation, and he asks Jesus to come and heal his daughter. And I wonder if the back of Jairus' mind, we weren't really told much about him, but if he was one of those religious leaders who was speaking those horrible things about Jesus and you know, having that mindset towards Jesus, I wonder if he's in this place thinking, will Jesus actually do this for me? After what I did to him when he healed someone on the Sabbath, after I sided with the religious leaders and had this mindset towards him, I wonder if he's going to show compassion on my little girl after what I've done. And I wonder if that's part of his response of just begging Jesus, maybe thinking, I'm not sure he's going to do what I asked him to do. But notice how Jesus responds. Jesus goes with Jerry, starts heading to his house in order to heal 
his little girl. You know, I love this about Jesus. When we need him, he's always there. Hebrews 13, 5, Jesus himself said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Now, I think it's important to note that Jairus had a lot to lose in coming to Jesus. Just think about his position. Think about the reality of the fact that these religious leaders, you know what, they don't want anything to do with Jesus. And so Jairus most likely is going to lose his job because just like uh, pastor, the leader of the synagogue, that wasn't just something they did, you know, on the side. That was their job. That was what brought in their income. But, you know, so he's most likely going to lose that position. Coming to Jesus as a religious leader, when the religious leaders want nothing to do with him, Jairus is most likely no longer going to be the ruler of that synagogue. And I'm guessing that a lot of his friends, a lot of the close acquaintances, maybe even some of his family, have those feelings towards Jesus that are very negative. And so the fact that Jairus is coming to Jesus in this way, he's probably going to lose those relationships as well. So Jairus had a lot to lose in coming to Jesus. But you know what? I think it's interesting. Jairus isn't concerned about what he could lose in coming to Jesus. He's concerned about what he could gain in coming to Jesus, mainly the life or the healing of his little girl. I think this is another great example of how to come to Jesus. You see, Jairus, first we see he came in humility, second he came in desperation, but now we see him coming, not focused on what he's going to lose in coming to Jesus, but focused on what he's going to gain in coming to Jesus. I think this is so interesting because I know too many people, too often people won't come to Jesus because they're concerned about what they are going to lose. They're concerned about what they're going to have to give up if they come to Jesus, if they follow Jesus. If, if I follow Jesus, I'm going to have to give up this particular relationship. If I follow Jesus, I'm going to have to give up this particular lifestyle. If I follow Jesus, I'm going to have to give up the partying. I'm going to have to give up the drinking. I'm going to have to give up the drugs. I'm going to have to give up this and that and the next thing. And the reality is ultimately people are saying, you know what? I don't want to make a commitment to follow Jesus because I don't want to give up. I don't want to lose this lifestyle that I enjoy, that I want. I don't want to give up these sins. You know, I was one of those people. When I was in high school and I started partying, I started doing drugs, I started going down that you know, road that was definitely not healthy for me. I had family, I had friends come in and say, you know, you need to get right with Jesus, you need to repent of your sin, you need to stop doing these things. And ultimately, my thought was, I don't want any of that. I like this lifestyle. I like this party scene. I'm enjoying these things. I want to continue with this. I don't want to give up this sin. I don't want to give up these things. I was thinking, you know what? I don't want to come to Jesus because I don't want to lose these things that I thought were fulfilling and I thought were things that were meeting my need at that point in time. You know, I just wasn't ready to give up my sin. And the ultimate reason is because I believe the lie that the party and lifestyle that the lifestyle that's opposed to what God says ultimately fulfills, ultimately brings happiness, ultimately brings joy, ultimately brings peace. But I learned the hard way, as many of you probably have as well, that that's not true. That lifestyle does not bring fulfillment. It doesn't bring peace. It doesn't bring joy. It doesn't bring happiness. It brings emptiness. It doesn't satisfy at all. What I didn't realize that so many others didn't realize as well is holding on to my sinful lifestyle. You know what? What I gain in Jesus is a million times better than what I'm going to lose or have to give up in coming to him. But the enemy wants to deceive us into thinking, oh, no, no, no. You're going to have to give up so much and lose so much. Don't come to Jesus. It's not worth it. And it's not true. 
What we gain in coming to Jesus is so much greater than what we'll ever lose. And you know what? You start to discover the things that you've lost or the things that you gave up were actually weren't good for you at all. Those things you thought, oh, I was so great when I could do this party or this, that. And you realize, you know what? That was just leaving me empty. That wasn't even helpful. That wasn't even good in my life. Sin brings bondage and death. Jesus brings freedom and life. Our pursuits and pleasures lead to emptiness, but Jesus makes us whole and satisfied. Living for Jesus is the most rewarding life there is. The world doesn't want us to believe that. Satan doesn't want us to believe that. But the reality is, and those of you who have experienced living for Jesus, is the most rewarding, most fulfilling life there is. You know what? We also need to understand it's not just about what we gain or lose in this life. The reality is following Jesus in this life is far superior than following your pleasures and following your desires and following worldly things in this life. But it's not just really about this life. There's something much more significant. Jesus says something very important for us to remember. Mark 8, 36. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? What good is it if you gain everything this world has to offer and yet still go to hell? Lose your own soul. See, Jesus is saying there's something much bigger than just this life. You could live this life for the world and for its pleasures and for all that it has. And and what good is it if you gain all of that, but yet when you die and stand before God, you're judged and sent to hell because you never came into a relationship with Jesus Christ. So it's not just about coming to Jesus and this life being greater and more fulfilling. It's also about coming to Jesus for the life after this one. Are we going to go and be with him in heaven because we've chosen him? Or are we going to go and be in hell because we've rejected him? Don't allow what you might lose or might, what you might have to give up keep you from coming to Jesus. I love this about Jairus. He didn't let that stop him. He came to Jesus because he was focused on what he would gain, not what he would lose. You know, the summer before my senior year of high school is when I came to Jesus, when I finally humbled myself, when I recognized I was desperate in need of Him. And it was that point in time when I realized, you know what? I'm not focused on what I'm losing. I'm focused on what I'm gaining in coming to Jesus. I gave Him my life. I asked Him to forgive me. He did. He changed me. And I started living for Him and realized, you know what? There's so much more peace and fulfillment and joy in living for Christ over living for yourself. And I remember my brother and I both at a young age said we're never going to be pastors. We're never going to be in ministry. We don't want to be poor anymore. We're just going to live for the pleasures of life. We're going to make lots and lots of money. And I got serious about God and he didn't. He kept pursuing those things. And it was just interesting to see kind of the parallel of what the Lord was doing in my life and how he was blessing my life versus my brother's pursuits, trying to fulfill himself with the pleasures of this world and just seeing the downward spiral that it just kept taking him even to the point now where he still hasn't really got right with the Lord. Uh, And it's just amazing to see when you give your life to God how much greater and how much more fulfilling it is. So Jairus comes to Jesus in humility in desperation, focused on what he would gain, not what he would lose. And Jesus responds by saying, you know what, Jairus, let's go. I'm going to come to your house, and I'm going to heal your little girl. So they start walking to Jairus' house, and now they're interrupted. And I'm sure for Jairus this was something that he wasn't pleased about. I'm not the most patient person on the freeway. I can imagine if my daughter was about to die, and Jesus was there with me, and we're heading to my house, and we stop 
I'd be like, you know, why are we stopping? We need to get to my house. We need to touch my daughter. Come on. And so there's, there's this interruption, but yet within this, we see another person who's desperate for Jesus' touch, who needs Jesus to touch her. And we're going to see who she is. Verse 43. Now a woman having a flow of blood for 12 years, who has spent all her livelihood on physicians and cannot be healed by any, came from behind and touched the border of his garment, and immediately her flow of blood stops. So Luke tells us as Jesus is walking towards Jairus' house, there's this multitude of people around, and within that crowd, there's a woman. And this woman has had an issue of blood, a flow of blood for 12 years. She's been hemorrhaging for 12 years. Now, it's important to note, in our culture, that would just be something that would be very horrible just to have that going on for that period of time. But you wouldn't be rejected by society because uh, there wouldn't be a lot of negative things because you, you know, have that going on in your life. But in that culture and in that society, it was very different because her condition made her ceremonially and socially unclean. When a woman had her period at that point in time, that short period of time that you were on your period, you were considered socially and ceremonially unclean until that passed. And so you wouldn't be able to touch your family, your husband. You wouldn't be able to go into the synagogue. You wouldn't be around people at that point in time. Now, that's just for a little period of time. But imagine this woman for 12 years is now considered ceremonially and socially unclean. She would have been an outcast. She wouldn't be able to touch people. She wouldn't be able to go around people. She wouldn't be able to go into the synagogue. She wouldn't be able to go into the temple, or at least you know, the woman's part of the temple. Adam Clark says, By the very law of her people, she had to be separated from her husband and could not live in her home. She was ostracized from all society and must not come into contact with her old friends. She was excommunicated from the services of the synagogue and thus shut out from the woman's court in the temple. Now, if that's not bad enough that 12 years have gone by and you're totally an outcast from society, from an illness that you have that there's nothing you can do about, we're told that she went to doctors and spent all of her money on them, but yet they couldn't do anything for her. She's desperate. She comes to doctor after doctor. Please, you know, sure, surely you can find a cure for this. Surely you can do something to stop this bleeding. And each doctor she comes to can't do anything for her, and she spends everything that she has on this. This woman has tried everything to fix her problem, but none of it works. And now she comes to a point in her life where she realizes there's only one person who can meet my need. There's only one person who can heal me. There's only one person who can deal with this issue I have, and that is Jesus. She decides that she's going to come to Jesus. And we're told this woman really believes something very interesting. She believed that if I can just touch the hem, the outer part of Jesus' garment, then I'll be healed. I want you to note something in, in how this woman comes to Jesus. Note her great faith. She believes, you know what, Jesus has so much power, he doesn't have to, as he so often does, touch me, or so often does, you know, tell people you're healed, or, or have an interaction. If I can just get close enough to him, just to touch the hem of his garment, he has so much power, I believe just doing that will heal me of what I'm dealing with. I find this woman's faith very impressive because I think she had a lot of reason not to have faith. Imagine her. Twelve years have gone by. She spent all her money on doctors. She's gone to the educated people, 
the people that you would expect would have some knowledge about how to deal with the issue that she has, this physical problem of hemorrhaging. Surely the doctors will know. Surely the doctors can do it. Surely if I just give them enough money, they'll figure out some kind of thing to help me with this. And year after year, time after time, doctor after doctor, they keep telling her the same message. There's nothing we can do for you. There's nothing we can do for you. Sorry, you're going to have to live this way for the rest of your life. Twelve years ostracized from society 12 years believing that I can never be healed there's nothing that's ever going to be able to stop me from having this hemorrhaging problem I think if a woman has been told that over and over again by doctors that would affect her faith I think when she would come thinking you know what no one's ever been able to do anything for me I've spent all my money I've come to the people who should know and they haven't been able to do anything I would think that would impact your faith that would bring you some doubts maybe I'm just incurable maybe there's no one who could ever do anything to help me I wouldn't be surprised if that woman came to Jesus like that after having the background that she did for 12 years but yet she still has great faith in Jesus she doesn't bring all that baggage and all those thoughts and all the things that she's experienced. She says, you know what? I actually believe he has so much power. All I need to do is touch the hem of his garment and I'll be healed. I think this woman is a great example of the faith and the confidence and the power of Jesus as we come to him. Trusting that he has the power. Trusting that he is able to heal. To meet the need that you have. So this woman walks through this crowd to Jesus, and when she gets to him, she touches Jesus' garment, and we're told that she's immediately healed, that her blood flow stops. Now, I want you to understand, in order for this woman to get through this crowd, she's got to touch people. There's a crowd mobbing Jesus all around Jesus, and the only way to get to Jesus is to get through this crowd and touch people. But here's a problem. She's unclean. Ceremonial and socially unclean. For her to touch someone makes them unclean. And if someone were to find out that she touched them being unclean, that would be a big problem. Because now you just made me unclean, and I'm not going to be happy about that. There are big consequences to that. And so for her to come to Jesus, she has to go and do something that could bring a lot of fear. I have to touch people. People who always keep me at arm's length. People who never want me around because they know if I touch them, I make them unclean. And you know what her plan Although it shows great faith, she might be thinking, this could backfire. Because guess what? My plan is to come and touch Jesus. And according to the thought of that day, she would be making Jesus unclean. Here's an unclean person with the thought, you know what? I'm going to go touch Jesus and that's going to heal me. Well, wait a second. If I go touch Jesus, that'll make him unclean. And if he stops and says, wait a second, this unclean person just touched me. How is this crowd going to respond? I've just made Jesus unclean. So she had a lot of reason, I believe, to fear. A lot of reason to say, you know what? I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to come to him. You know, what if I touch people? What if I touch him? And, you know, but yet, I think another thing to note about this woman and how she came to Jesus, she did not let her fear keep her from coming to Jesus. Fear is one of the biggest things that really keep people from coming to Jesus to meet their spiritual needs to meet their emotional needs, to meet their physical needs. You know, as a pastor for a while, and you just listen to people's reasons for why they won't come to Jesus, really so much of it comes back to fear. And one of the most common fears, especially when coming to Jesus for your spiritual need, is the fear of what people might think. 
the fear of men. The fear of, well, if I go to Jesus and, and I get salvation, you know, what is my family going to think? And what are my friends going to think? And how are people going to respond to me? Proverbs 29, 25 says, The fear of man brings a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord shall be saved. Don't let fear of people keep you from coming to Jesus. And sometimes it's easier said than done because you know, we have a lot of fears, and it's not just fear of people, but yet those fears can hinder us. And for those of us who have accepted Jesus, remember, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power, of love, and of a sound mind. Don't let fear keep you from coming to Jesus. Well, now notice how Jesus responds to this woman. Verse 45. And Jesus said, Who touched me? When all deny it, Peter and those with him said, Master, the multitudes throng and press you, and you say, Who touched me? But Jesus said, Somebody touched me, for I perceived power going out from me. Now when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him. She declared to him in the presence of all the people the reason she had touched him and how she was healed immediately. And he said to her, Daughter, be of good cheer. Your faith has made you well. Go in peace. So Jesus is walking through this huge crowd. Jairus is there with them. They're going to Jairus' house in order to heal Jairus' daughter. And all of a sudden Jesus stops and he says, Who touched me? Now, Jairus is probably thinking, who cares? Let's keep going. Let's get to my daughter's house. The disciples are thinking, what are you talking about? This crowd is thronging you. Everybody is touching you. What do you mean, who touched you? Uh, about 50 people in the last few seconds did. So they're just kind of like, we don't get what you're saying here, Jesus. And then Jesus said, someone touched me, for I perceive power come out of me. This wasn't just the touching of people in a crowd. This was a specific touch of someone who wanted something from me and power has come out of me. And we're told that people weren't saying anything. Probably the way in which Jesus said it, they're like, oh, are we in trouble? What's going on? But yet this woman of all people had the most reason to stay quiet because she's unclean. And for her to say, I touched you. And by the way, you know, I touched you and you and you on the way up here. You know, this wasn't good. And she finally just comes clean and says it was me. And she explains her situation. She explains that she was healed. And I think that's so interesting that according to the thinking of the day, when she touches Jesus, it would make Jesus unclean. But because of the nature of Jesus and the power of God, that's not how it worked. When she touched Jesus, Jesus wasn't made unclean. Instead, she was made whole and said she was healed. And I love that because when we bring our sin to Jesus, when we come to Jesus with our sin, we lay it upon Him. It doesn't make Him a sinner. It only just makes us whole. It cleanses us. He forgives us. And Jesus said to this woman, Daughter, be a good cheer. Your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Jesus says that a lot. Your faith has made you well. He's impressed by this woman's faith, impressed by the fact that she thought, you know what, if I just come and touch His garment, it'll heal me. He loves it when we believe that he can meet our need. Well, I'm sure Jarius is like, let's get going. And while this is going on, and while there's this stop here, and Jarius is wanting Jesus to get to his daughter, one of Jarius' servants come, and he has some bad news for Jarius. Verse 49. While Jesus was still speaking, someone came from the ruler of the synagogue's house, saying to him, your daughter's dead. 
Do not trouble the teacher. But when Jesus heard it, he answered him, saying, Do not be afraid, only believe, and she will be made well. So Jesus is talking to this woman, and Jairus is waiting for Jesus to get done so Jesus can get to his daughter's house and heal his daughter. And as he's waiting there, one of his servants come to him. And his servant says to Jairus, Your daughter's dead. Don't trouble the teacher. Now, I find this very interesting, this statement of the servant, because it really shows a lack of faith in the power of Jesus. The servant is basically saying, you know what, we know Jesus has the power to heal sick people. We've seen it. We know Jesus can take care of people who are sick, but once they're dead, that's beyond his power. Once they're dead, you know, he no longer can do anything, and so, you know what, she's dead, don't trouble him anymore. It was fine that you came and got him while she was still alive, while she was still sick, while she was still on her sick bed. He could have done something for her then, but now she's dead and Jesus no longer has power because that's beyond his power. You know, I think oftentimes we respond to difficult situations like the servant did. There are plenty of things in our life where we feel confident that Jesus can meet that need. So we come to him, oh Jesus, I know you can heal this person, or I know you can meet this need, or I know you can get me through this circumstance, I know you can help me in this situation, and we come because we think he can do it. But then there comes needs that are maybe really big, and all of a sudden, we're probably like this servant sometimes where it's like, ah, don't bother him. This is beyond what he's capable of. Don't bother him because this is too much. He, he can't handle this. He doesn't have the power to meet this need in my life. So we decide not to trouble Jesus, not to ask for help, not to think he can help. We think it's too big for him to handle, too difficult for him to handle. Something that we need to understand, and we've seen this over and over in the Gospel of Luke, is nothing is too big for Jesus to take care of. Nothing is too hard for him to overcome. You'll never encounter something too much for Jesus to deal with. You'll never have a sin that you commit too great for him to forgive. So come to him with your needs and let him do the miraculous. So the servant tells Jairus, your daughter is dead, don't trouble Jesus. And Jesus hears what's being told to Jairus, and right away he says something to Jairus. He tells Jairus, don't be afraid, only believe. Jesus tells Jairus to do two very important things. The first is don't be afraid. Now it kind of sounds a little bit cruel to say that to a man who just heard that his daughter died. Don't be afraid, Jairus. But you know what? Jesus understands that fear and faith are opposite of one another. They cannot go together. If you have fear, you will not have faith. And if you have faith, it will get rid of your fear. Before Jairus could really trust Jesus, he had to decide to put away his fear. As we saw with the disciples in the storm, their fear caused them to doubt Jesus. We, didn't, we doubt that you still care about us. We doubt that you have the power to take care of us. Those in the region of the Gadareans, their fear caused them to say, Jesus, get out of here. We don't want you here anymore. Fear hinders faith. So first, Jesus says, Darius, you need to not be afraid. And second, only believe. You know, Jairus believed in Jesus. He came to Jesus, believing Jesus could touch his daughter. And Jesus is saying, you know what? You're going to have to take that belief a little farther. I know you believe that I could come while she was sick and heal her. Now I want you to believe that I can come and raise her from the dead. I can come and do something even more miraculous. Just believe I can do the impossible. Don't try to believe and be afraid at the same time. Don't try to believe and figure it all out. Only believe. 
And I think this is what Jesus wants us to do when we come to him with our needs, with our difficult circumstances, to lay aside our fears and just believe. And there's so many fears that come up. There's so many things that, that get in the way. And Jesus saying, you know what, just, just believe. Just trust me that I can do it and just lay those things aside. You don't need to know all the details. You don't need to understand everything. Just, you know, I know there's things that you're concerned about. I know there's fears you have, but just don't allow those things to keep you from trusting me, from believing me, from coming to me. Now, this is oftentimes really difficult for us to believe when we don't understand everything. We want to know, well, I could believe Jesus if you just explain how this is going to work out. If you just explain all the details, if you just tell me everything in advance, then I'll believe. No, I just want you to believe even when you don't know. Just trust me to believe when everything inside of us is afraid. Oh, Jesus, you don't understand. If I lose this person, I couldn't live and go another day. You don't understand. This circumstance is so hard. Just trust me. Don't be afraid. To believe when it seems like Jesus is taking too long, which I'm sure Jairus might have been thinking, well, if you just would have not stopped for this woman and we would have got to my house, maybe my daughter would have not died. To believe when all of our circumstances tell us we can't. I think this is the real test of our belief. Can we lay aside those things and just only believe in Jesus? It can be very difficult to do. I remember in Scotland... Jenny and I faced a pretty big need, and it was difficult to not allow fear, not allow these things to, to creep in. When we were in Scotland, we lived off of monthly support from churches and individuals, and for years, God faithfully provided through churches, through individuals, and every month, He gave us what we needed to survive. But then the recession hit here, and we started seeing missionary friends, one who was actually ministering with us in Scotland who had to go some other people that we knew, not only in Scotland, but in other places in Europe, who had to move back to the States because churches couldn't support them anymore, individuals couldn't give anymore because, you know, people were losing their jobs here, ties were going down, you know, the recession hit. And not long after that, we got a phone call and some emails from some of our main supporting churches and some of our main supporting individuals saying, you know what, we've taken a big hit. And we're trying to figure out how we're going to deal with all the church finances, but we've decided we're going to cut missions. And so we're no longer able to support you guys, and you know, you're in our prayers, basically. And the monthly support we lost was $1,520, about half of what we needed. And just watching some of my friends already leaving the mission field because of this, and all of a sudden I'm hit with this thinking, man, we're done. There's no way we can survive losing, you know, over $1,500 a month in support. You know, Lord, what's going to happen here? And I remember him just saying, you know, just trust me. But yet that fear was there, and I'm starting to think about, man, we're not ready to move on. And, you know, what's going to happen to the church? What's, you know, uh, and I'm, all these things going to my mind, all these fears coming, and definitely concerned that this was the end for our ministry there, for us being there. And the Lord, once again, just trust me. And it was difficult, and I just decided, all right, Lord, you've always provided, so I'm just going to trust that you're going to continue to provide. Well, during that month, all of a sudden, two churches, several individuals get in contact with us, tell us they want to support us on a monthly basis. We don't know who these churches were. We don't know how they ever found out about us. We still, to this day, don't know the connection there. They just, obviously the Lord, but randomly get in contact with us, tell us that. The money that all of that brought together was $1,600, $80 more than what we lost. And so in that month, that month that we're freaking out, okay, we have 
our support here, and now we're going to lose it for this next month. And the Lord just provided everything. We didn't miss a beat. Uh, and he just reminded us, hey, you can trust me. But yet those big needs come, and we start freaking out, and we start fearing, and we think, you know, is God really trustworthy? Can we really come to him with our needs? Is he able to meet the needs that we have? So Jesus tells Jairus, don't be afraid, only believe, and she'll be made well. Let's see what happens. Verse 51. When he came into the house, he permitted no one to go in except Peter, James, and John, and the father and the mother of the girl. Now all wept and mourned for her, but he said, Do not weep, she is not dead, but sleeping. And they ridiculed him, knowing that she was dead. But he put them outside and took her by the hand and called, saying, Little girl, arise. Then her spirit returned, and she arose immediately, and he commanded that she be given something to eat. And her parents were astonished, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. So when Jesus gets to Jairus' house, he only allows Jairus and Peter, James, and John to come with him. And as they approach the house, they can hear the people weeping and wailing because this little girl has died. And he says, don't weep, she's not dead, she's only sleeping. And they start to make fun of him and laugh at him. And Jesus puts them all out. And just the parents and Peter, James, and John and himself are there. And he comes and he says to the girl, little girl, arise. And this little girl who is dead now is risen to life and he gives, it, gives her back to her parents and he tells her parents, you know what, don't tell anyone what had happened. Through this miracle, Jesus proved that his touch is greater than anything that can come against us, even death. And I'm sure Jairus, who's trying just to only believe, has lots of doubts of can you really touch my little girl who's now dead and now all of a sudden, wow. This recognition of the true power of Jesus. That no matter what you're going through, no matter how difficult it is, there's no touch, there's nothing that you can go through that Jesus can't meet. All of us have needs that only Jesus can meet. And the first thing we need to do is recognize that. Recognize that going to all these other different sources where we try to meet that need, maybe it's our own strength or other people or whatever it may be, we need to come to a recognition that there are needs in our life spiritually, emotionally, physically, and there's only one person who can meet that need, and that's Jesus. That's the first step, recognizing that He's the only one who can do it, but I know people who recognize that but still don't come to Him. The second step is, right, now I need to come to Him with my need. I need to come to Him and ask Him to meet my need. And when we come, let's come like Jarius. Let's come like this woman with humility, with desperation, concerned with what we're going to gain in coming to Jesus, not with what we might lose. Come with great faith that Jesus can meet your need. Come not allowing fear to get in the way. Come, as Jesus says, only believing. All of us need Jesus' touch on a daily basis. And we know many others who need Jesus' touch as well. And so not only does Jesus want us to come to him for our own needs, but he wants us to come to him for the needs of others, to pray for them, to lift their needs up, and ask that Jesus would meet those needs as well. You know, I think one of the groups of people in our society today that really need a touch from Jesus that only he can meet are fathers. Statistics show something that's very sad. The reality is fathers are a vital part of the home. And when a father is lacking, especially not just physically but also spiritually, it has a huge detrimental effect on the kids. And Satan has been very, very effective in destroying fathers. 
A lot of fathers abandon their families. A lot of fathers aren't spiritual leaders in their home. And Satan has been very good in removing that influence, whether just by physically removing or spiritually the influence isn't there. You know, the, the church is in great need of not just biological fathers to take on the spiritual role that God has given them, but you know what? We're in a place now, maybe more than ever, where we have so many kids in the church that either don't have fathers or don't have fathers who are taking on that spiritual role where we need other men who are godly to take on that spiritual father role. You know, Paul called himself the father in the faith to Timothy. And it's interesting, if you look at Timothy, it was his mom that was a believer. His dad was not. Timothy didn't have a spiritual role model as a dad. And Paul comes in and takes on that role. He says, you know what, Timothy, I'm going to be the father in the faith to you. I know you don't have a father who's a spiritual man in your life, and so I'm going to be that man for you. And it's amazing to see what God does through Timothy as Paul invests in Timothy and takes on that role. You know, I read a study that reveals the huge significance of a father's spiritual role in the home. And I'm going to read some statistics to you because I was pretty blown away by how huge that influence is. And we shouldn't really be surprised because God's the one who said, hey, the man is the one that I have placed as a spiritual head of the home. The husband, the father, that's his role. Now, the reality is in the church world today, the one who's actually taking on board that spiritual role the most is the mom and the wife. But that's not who it was given to. It was given to the husband and the father. And sadly, too many husbands and fathers are happy to let someone else take that spiritual responsibility that God has given to them. But notice the statistics here. I find this very interesting. In the early 2000s, there were a bunch of researchers who got together to answer an important question. The question was asked to determine whether a person's Christianity carried through to the next generation. So as a father or a parent, does my Christian belief carry on to my kids? Why or why not? That's ultimately what they wanted to find out. And they discovered something very interesting. There was one critical factor. If you want your Christian faith to go on to your kids, the most important thing is the Christian practice of the father in the family. That above everything else determined the future attendance or absence of church and following Christ from the kids. Through their research, they found that if both the father and mother attend church regularly, 33% of their children will end up as regular churchgoers, 41% will end up attending irregularly, uh, and only a quarter of their children will not practice attending church or following Christianity at all. So 75%, if both parents go to church regularly, of their kids are most likely to continuing to follow the Lord. Now, if the father is irregular going to church, but the mother attends all the time, it goes from 31% or 33% to 3%. 33% when the father goes and the mother go, then the kids are most likely to continue regularly in the church. When the father irregularly goes, only 3% of children will become regular church attenders, while further 59% will become irregular. So 38% will not attend church at all. So when the father is irregular, it makes a huge impact. If the father doesn't go at all, non-practicing, doesn't attend church, and the mother regularly attends every single week, only 2% of the children will become regular church attenders, and 37% will attend irregularly, and 60% will never go to church again. They show the statistics the other way around. If the father goes every week and the mother doesn't, actually, more kids go to church. They're showing, really, the mother is not the significant issue here. When the mother's not going and the father is, actually, more kids are actually going. 
The research also found that when godly men in the church take on spiritual father roles of kids who don't have that, those kids who are down to 3% and 2% jump up into 20%, sometimes even 30% of likelihood of being people who continue to go and attend church and be followers of Christ. So it's bringing up this reality that that spiritual leadership as fathers and even those who take on that spiritual father role is huge. And we look at the statistics and we see so many kids, you know, not following the Lord anymore. And there's huge statistics of kids going out of high school and then abandoning their faith. You know, one thing that we don't recognize or maybe don't come back to is how little the fathers and men, they're not taking the spiritual responsibility like they should. And that's one of the huge issues of why we see this very sad statistic of so many young people abandoning Christianity. All that to say, it's Father's Day. And I want to take time to pray for fathers. Because this is huge. This is something that is so difficult, such a huge responsibility, and recognize the significance and the impact that it has on your kids. So I want to take time as a church just to pray for fathers this morning, pray that God would really strengthen us, give us what we need to be those godly men, to be those men who pass on spiritual truth to our kids. But you know what? I don't just want to pray only for fathers who have children, biological children, but, you know, I want to pray for the men as a whole in our church as well, because, you know, you can be someone who doesn't have a biological kid, but you can take on that spiritual father role for children, for teens, for, you know, young adults who are in desperate need of it, who don't have an influence of a spiritual man in their life, and you can be that man. You can be a father to your kids and a father, you know, to someone else's as well, uh, and just recognizing there are a lot of kids who don't have fathers, or a lot of kids who have fathers, but yet the father doesn't take on any spiritual responsibility in the home, and so they're desperately seeking someone who's going to come and pour into their life spiritually. And so I just want to pray for men as a whole as well, not just fathers this morning, because this is something that's an epidemic in the church world, and something that we want to ask the Lord to help us as a body of believers to really be those men who can be an example of those who lead their families and lead people spiritually. So Let's just take some time. Um, I'm going to leave it open as we do often for anyone who wants to pray. Uh, and then uh, I will close us in prayer. I'll ask Ray to open us in prayer. But uh, let's just ask the Lord to move and minister to the fathers, to men, uh, and just that the young people, uh, this next generation, that God would really do a huge work because of that.